All right, we're coming back to the book of Romans. We come to the end of Romans 1 this morning. And uh, we're going to finish up these last few verses of Romans 1. But before we do, I'm going to turn back into the Old Testament and observe a story. And I want to bring to your attention uh, a story of King Nebuchadnezzar in the book of Daniel. Very briefly, the theme of the book of Daniel seems to be the identity of, of God. And it's established early in the book when we read that after Nebuchadnezzar had conquered Jerusalem, he carried the vessels from the temple of God in Jerusalem to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. This is his way of saying in, in the midst of this that, that Nebuchadnezzar's opinion is his created God is stronger than this Jewish God. It was no big thing for him. And for everyone outside looking in, it sure seemed that way, right? God's people were taken away from their land and, and placed under his rule. But Nebuchadnezzar doesn't understand God. He doesn't understand God's plan. God didn't tell him at that time or his power. And he's bringing, God in his wisdom is bringing Nebuchadnezzar and he's using him to bring judgment upon his people who had walked away from God. Now, Nebuchadnezzar in that story wasn't all that interested in proving that his God was stronger than a Jewish God. He really wasn't religious much at all. He just thought, well, well this is what their temple thing, we'll, we'll just put it in mine. But what we find out is, is Nebuchadnezzar's God was just a projection of himself. It was really his alter ego. So the, the focus of the book of Daniel is really Nebuchadnezzar himself against Jehovah God. And it's the same focus that we read here in Romans 1. Nebuchadnezzar didn't want to acknowledge God, and that's the same issue that we've been looking at throughout Romans 1. See, Nebuchadnezzar wanted to run his own life. It's, it's my life. I, I, he believes he knows best, and he's going to do what he wants. He wants to accomplish what he wants, and no one's going to tell him what to do. If you remember later, a couple chapters, Daniel and his friends are thrown into the fiery furnace. And the, the amazing story that is, you know, Nebuchadnezzar at that point, it seems like he's maybe changed his tune, you know, uh, of praise, this God and how he saves him. But, but really, we see really quickly that he hasn't changed at all. He's, he's wowed by this situation, but, but he really only worships himself. And, and we read this in chapter 4. As, as the response, again, of what God is going to do to his people, Nebuchadnezzar says, it's not this great Babylon which I have built, okay? I did this, Nebuchadnezzar says, by my mighty power as a royal residence for the glory of my majesty. The glory of my majesty. That's what he cries out. This is the cry of those who reject God today, the secular humanists. They're not living for God's glory. And there's only two options, friends. They're living for themselves, for their glory. It's either your own glory of your own life and what you think you can do or, or who God is and what God has done. And do you remember what God does then in judgment to Nebuchadnezzar? He brings judgment on him. 
And I wonder sometimes if we think of judgment, we read the Bible and we just think that God is just acting arbitrarily. You know, he's just going through a list like, oh, let's see here. I give him leprosy. No, I don't want to do that. Maybe I'll make him mute. No, you know, that doesn't sound good. Deafness. No, I haven't done that. Oh, let's see here. Insanity. Yeah, that sounds like a good one. We might think that's how God comes to judgment when we read God's response, but that's not true. He says, O King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken, the kingdom has departed from you, and you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field, and you shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and seven periods of time shall pass over you until you know, until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. God is not arbitrary in his judgments. Everything God does is significant and deliberate. And when God causes Nebuchadnezzar to be lowered from the pinnacle of human pride and glory to the baseness of insanity, it was God's way of saying that this is what happened to all those who suppress the truth about God and take his glory for themselves. Pride was at the root of Nebuchadnezzar's issues. Pride is at the root of our world's issues, of our issues. Moral insanity is here, in which in the world we declare what what was good is now evil, and what is evil is now good. And that's driven by pride. The unwillingness to rightly affirm who God is in his rightful place in our lives, that's driven by pride. And it's all because of the rejection of God. Worship of God becomes disordered and ultimately, Paul says for us that our minds and our lives will be disordered. So here's the main idea. It's just a little bit different than last week, okay? Because really, if you remember, verses 24 through the end of the chapter is just one cohesive thought. Um, It should be preached in one sermon, but I chose differently. I split it up. So here's the main idea. When our worship of God is disordered, our lives will be disordered. So three points as we walk through this. Disordered worship shrinks our mind. Disordered worship ruins a life. Disordered worship approves of evil. So this is my last sermon in the short series of the book of Romans 1, just chapter 1, and so I hope it serves you well. We're going to read the whole chapter. So follow with me as I read Romans chapter 1. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh, and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. To all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I mention you, 
always in my prayers, asking that somehow by God's will I may now at last succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. That is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented, in order that I may reap some harvest among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to wise and to the foolish, so I'm eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools, and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie, and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions, for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. So let's back up to verse 28 and see the first point. Disordered worship shrinks our mind. If you remember last week, if you were here, we left off in verse 27 talking about disordered worship and its effects on our desires and sexuality and otherwise. And this morning, Paul finishes this argument that sin not only affects our affections and idolatry and our senses and sex and relationships, but sin also affects our very thinking, as verse 28 and following says. And if you're paying attention today in the world, you can see it. You can observe it. There are problems with how people think. As I said earlier, right has become wrong, wrong has become right. And our world has bought into lies and now endorsing them as necessary truth. And why is that? What we learn from the Bible that turning away from true knowledge of God means cutting ourselves off from any ultimately accurate understanding of this world and our place within this world. 
suppressing the truth of God suppresses our opportunities to think rightly about this world. If you remember that Paul's main point is that the moral chaos in the world is the visible evidence here and now of the wrath of God. The wrath of God is revealed by moral chaos because they refuse to acknowledge God and submit to him. It's, it's not that people in our world refuse to acknowledge anything. Most people acknowledge that something is wrong in our world, but they suggest that we should try to, to fix it a different way, to, that somehow we can make it better ourselves. And they believe that they have the answers to life's greatest issues. But ultimately they don't because they rejected God in his ways. And God has given them over to their degraded mind. As again, verse 28, since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up. God gave them over to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. If you remember from last week, that definition to hand someone over is a technical expression for the police or courts in turning someone over to an official custody for the purpose of punishment. Like a judge who hands over a prisoner to the punishment of his crimes, God hands over the sinner to the terrible cycle of ever-increasing sin. And this week we see that sin continues in a debased mind, which means a corrupted mind, a a degenerate mind. Really, it's a mind that, that really shrinks. One might say that since they did not see fit to retain the knowledge of God, he gave them over to an unfit mind, an unprofitable mind. And for me, it, it, it makes sense to connect that to Nebuchadnezzar and what we saw earlier. And there's a word play here in this verse. Look again at verse 28. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They have tested God's worth and rejected him, so God yields them to a mind that has failed the test or is worthless. Paul's thought is not that they refuse to have God in their knowledge, but they simply kick God out of the circle of influence in their lives. Their ignorance of him was not because they don't have an opportunity to know him, as we've seen throughout Romans 1, but it's their deliberate refusal to know him. They prefer other things over God. And so God righteously hands them over to their wrong thinking and the results are tragic, as we see in point number two. So, a disordered worship shrinks our minds, and second, disordered worship ruins a life. Now, remember, Paul is not claiming that every human being who does not believe the gospel, yourself before you came to Christ, thinks and and acts in every single way here, okay? This is not a blanket statement that every person does every single thing here in this second point. Really, it's a sweeping description and assessment of humanity as a whole. And Paul gives a list of vices, and the list demonstrates how a corrupted mind produces all kinds of social evils. And it, it talks about, this list talks about how, how one's corrupt mind affects other people. Minds, un, minds that are unqualified for anything worthwhile produce a wide variety of wicked behaviors. And, and all of them are examples of the human failure to to one's duty to know God and to submit their life to him. So there's 21 items here. I don't know if you noticed that when we read through it earlier. 21 items that Paul listed here. And, and I'm gonna, we're going to walk through them. Maybe not all in, in, in long 
moments each one, but briefly we'll go through all 21, and I broke them up into three sections. This is not in the notes, so if you want to jot it down, you can. The first section of the first four, it's, it's really the general terms for sin. So the first four are general terms. The second section is, is the main one, 13, and those focus on the basic sins affecting human relationships. And the third section, as the last four, is the result of sinful conduct that rejects God. So first, the general terms for sin. In verse 29, they were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. This first section consists of four initial words that are clustered together. Paul writes that they're being filled with all manner of righteousness. The word all means unrighteousness at every level. The first designation is, is, is like the topic sentence in a paragraph that describes all that's going to follow. And the word unrighteousness means violating a law, a departure from a standard. This word was used earlier, if you remember, in, in chapter 1, verse 18, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness. See, ungodliness is the internal attitude. Unrighteousness is the external action. Ungodliness is the internal attitude, and unrighteousness is the external action. Ungodliness is, is any dis, disrespect towards God, where un, unrighteousness is this behavior, the unruly behavior before him. And then Paul next says evil, which really means evil plots and purposes. This describes the scheming by evil men to commit their deeds of wickedness. They don't wait for sin to come to them. Instead, they, they initiate plots to commit sin and go after it, which ties into the next one of covetousness, which is an evil desire for more. They have a, a, a lack of contentment with what they have in life. No matter where they are in society, they're restless to grab for more in the world. They must always have more. And then completing the first section is malice, which means a desire to injure others. They're willing to, to, or, to harm others to get what they want. To, to, they run over people to work their way up the corporate ladder. To step on people in order to fulfill their greed. And you need to understand in this, this section, this list, these, these sins are like links in a chain, each interconnected with each other, each being pulled forward by the previous sin. So that's the first section there, the general terms for sin. Second is the sins, as I uh, titled it, affecting human relationships. The rest of verse 29, they're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents. The next section makes, in a sense, a trajectory of sin. Paul is saying that when a man's thoughts are devoid of God, his life is characterized by not just a touch of unrighteousness, but a, a fullness of unrighteousness that really touches every part of their life in some way. And when Paul writes they're, they're full of, he's meaning that their sin is, is full and overflowing. It's full and then being displayed, like, like pouring water into a cup that, is, that you keep going until it overflows. Their depraved hearts cannot contain the rising evil, and it, and it flows out then in their actions to others. And the first evil that fills the heart is envy, which is jealousy and wishing ill will. It is desiring that others not have what good they do have. Instead, they want what others have. 
It's a desire to, to injure others in order to obtain what they have. This is not described merely one person, but really a, a whole society of people who are filled with envy. This, this picture is of mass chaos in society where the masses are jealous of what others have. Well, think about it, friends. What happens to the quality of your life in your community, in your office, in your school, in your church, in your family, when just one member is filled with envy? I mean, parents, right? We can talk about this for a little bit with little kids, right? If you've got one kid filled with envy, how does that go in the house? Super pleasant, right? I mean, all of our hearts are, are, are bursting forth with that a little bit. But think about this in the context of our community. You know, envy tears apart the cohesive power of human relationships. Have you seen the misery that comes when just one member of a group is filled with envy? And in our communities then, when when people are resentful, unable to to be content, they always want what everyone else has, it's destructive. Which makes sense to the next one, right? After envy is murder. Which represents persons who are willing to kill in order to get other things. This person is willing to take the life of someone else who prevents them from having what they want. We, we see this in our world, right? The, the defense of this even. If we talk about just the issue of abortion with, with women who feel like they have no other way out, but for the sake of their career or for the sake of their family planning are willing to end a pregnancy... And the world condones it. The world encourages this, to think this way. Murder is the outworking of a heart that is bent on living in envy and wants to settle the score of life. This is followed by the sin of strife, which means contention and quarreling and arguing and bickering. Such a person will fight anyone to achieve what they want. If we're unsure this exists, just get on social media for half hour. Hop on Twitter. Plenty of strife. Then in battled spirit, this followed by deceit, he says, which means trickery. These, these individuals are willing to lie to whoever so that they can acquire what they want. The next is maliciousness, which speaks of the malignant hatred that is foaming up inside of them towards others. And then Paul moves to the sins of the tongue, stating that these that have, that have suppressed God, that have chosen not to follow him, will well, gossip. Literally, it means whispers. Whispering never makes friends. They secretly murmur in hushed tones behind the backs of others. This picture is a conspiracy that is conceived in darkness. There is perverse plotting and sinister contriving behind the scenes for evil purposes. Nothing is out in the open. No, it's, it's, it's hidden, unseen. I mean, how do we feel when someone gossips about us? How do you feel when, when people spread rumors about you that aren't true? I mean, gossip's been around for a long time, right? Can we think back the first time we saw gossip? Way back in Genesis, right? What did the snake say to Eve? 
Friends, we are more like Satan when we gossip about others. And, and gossip usually doesn't stop within itself. It leads to the next one. It says they're slanders, which are those that seek to defame others. And the root of this evil is found in, the, in this. Slander occurs when someone shares something about someone else that is not factual or perhaps partially true, but results in the, in the point of damaging the individual's reputation. Think about the, the devastating effects of slander in the church. I mean, it's devastating. Think about the devastating effects of slander towards pastors and elders. You know, God in his word gave us a way to deal with the sin of leaders. Just so you know. He's very clear in Matthew 18 and 1 Timothy 5, leaders don't just get a free pass. But sometimes people think the, motive, the way to that, to expose it, is slander. And what happens when slander comes in the church, primarily focused towards those who preach God's word, isn't, the person is hurt most definitely, but you know what's hurt most? The preaching of God's word. People don't want to trust the preaching of God's word. They don't want to trust the person that stands behind the pulpit. And, and effectively, it destroys a church. Slander doesn't build up unity in the church. Slander breaks down unity. Again, going back to the garden, right? Do we see slander there with the, with the serpent? Most definitely. And then Paul says they are haters of God. These are who, those who have rejected God and they do so because they hate him. Uh, notice that this is number 12 in the list of 21, so it's right in the middle. The center of the list. The heart of their problems is the heart or the problem of their hearts. They hate God. Meaning they, they hate all things about him. And this is a center because it, it, it fuels and promotes all the evils that Paul lists before and after. Further, these people are insolent, which describes those who are lifted up with pride. It portrays a verbal attack or heaping insults on in others. This is a, a prideful person who, who degrades others with insults. And also included are those that are haughty, he says. These refer to those that raise yourself up above others. And then they're boastful, means they're, they're self-exalting. And, and, and when you think the list couldn't get any worse, Paul continues to list and he says, they are inventors of evil. This is to say they concoct new forms of wickedness that earlier would have been totally unmanageable. They invent new ways to do evil. New categories that didn't previously exist, pushing the boundaries farther than they've ever gone. And, and they invent a whole new stratosphere of sin that is previously was not known. And, and they invent ways of doing evil, suggesting a certain ingenuity in devising wrong. See, these people are not just content and going on established patterns of evil, but they're eager to strike out new and worse ways. And then last in this section, and I don't know if you find this interesting or not, Paul says they're disobedient to parents. Was Paul just writing this list saying, I've got all these main things and I'm just going to get a help to mom and dad? Or was there something significant behind what he's saying here? You need to read the Old Testament and God's view 
of rebelling against your parents. God does not think lightly of this. So kids who've been checked out for all those moments, listen up. Having no regard for authority affects how you will respond to God. God in his wisdom, kids, gave you a mom and dad. He did that. And he did that so that mom and dad can display to you what God looks like. That's, that's a high level for mom and dad. And we're striving, moms and dads, to try to live that way. But God gave parents to kids so that they could understand who God is. And God is telling us in clear terms that obedience to parents is necessary. And when obedience by children to their parents is gone and wiped out, a society is set on a course of anarchy that knows no limits. Where there is no regard for one's parents, this moral breakdown leads to disregard for civil and criminal law. There's no respect for institutional authority in the classroom or the workplace or in the environment. And essentially, we become what we see in judges, everyone doing what they think is right in their own eyes. It's a complete moral breakdown of a society. And the simple truth in this list is that when people hate God and are disobedient to their parents, it's simply because they prefer to rule than to be ruled. And they believe the only way to happiness for their life is to be in charge of their entire life. But little do they know is that they're worshiping another God. If you're not a Christian, I am happy you're here. You are always welcome here. We meet here every Sunday. Lord willing, 1030. Please come. We'd love for you to be here and to listen. But if you're here and you're not a, a Christian following God, you need to ask this question of yourself. Can I be happy under any circumstances or is there some set of circumstances that is so important in my life that I cannot be happy without them? And once you've answered that question, you have found your God. Jonathan Edwards, a, a famous minister in the 1700s, was fired by his congregation because of a theological disagreement. And when the church council announced to him that Edwards had lost his job, one person who was observing Edwards, who wanted to see how he'd react, said this, that faithful witness received the shock unshaken. I never saw the least symptoms of displeasure in his countenance the whole week, but he appeared like a man of God whose happiness was out of the reach of his enemies. Where is your happiness found? Is it held hostage by certain circumstances? I promise you will never find the joy and happiness evidenced by Jonathan Edwards apart from trusting in Jesus Christ. Friends, you were made to know and worship God. All of us were. That is why you are alive today. That is why God in his grace continues to give you breath to breathe.
so that you would know him and that you would worship him. And if you're not following him, you have rebelled against him. And every time you have done something wrong, you have said to God, I want to run my life my way rather than your way. And that is what sin is. And God could rightly condemn all of us for that sin. But instead, he sent Jesus Christ to live a perfect life and to die on a cross as a substitute for us, for me. Bearing God's just wrath for our sins, for all of those who would ever turn from their sins and trust in him. And then Christ was raised from the dead, showing that God accepted his sacrifice. And once he has forgiven us, God leads us into new life that he promises. And so friends, God calls all of us now to repent of our sins and to trust in Jesus Christ alone. What would it look like for you to make this radical change in your life? What would it require of you to decide that Christ is worth more than the sins that you have been coddling and keeping in your life? I have to say, quite honestly, it would require you to turn your, you know, in the parables that we looked at months ago in the Gospel of Luke, Jesus describes people who are spiritually choked by life's worries, riches, and pleasures. They're choked. They're they're grasping for for breath by, by worries, riches, and pleasures. In other words, Jesus is saying there are some pleasures that will choke you. Did you know that? There are pleasures in this world that will choke you, that seek to kill you. You know that having sex outside of marriage is a sin? Or getting drunk is a sin? Or stealing at the office or school or lying, that's a sin? And I mention these particular sins because they seem to be the most common sins in our city and our nation. And like all sin, they might be pleasurable for a season. But spiritually, Jesus says, they will choke you. They will cut you off and cut your life, and they will lead you to death. And I wonder if you've been choking on some of your pleasures, wondering what's been going wrong. And not only can you be choked by a pleasure, the Bible says you can be enslaved to that pleasure. Paul writing to Timothy in in another list of of vices that he sees, he says at one time, talking to us as the, the church, we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived, and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. See, the world will never tell you that the pleasures of the world will enslave you. That's in the fine print. It's never up top. It, it, it isn't in the world's interest to tell you up, up front. By the way, this will enslave you for years and decades. But it's true. There are happiness and the pleasures in this world that are enjoyable, but will enslave you. And it'll seem like there's no way out. Christ can set you free from the pleasures 
that are confusing in this life and confounding in the next life. The pleasures that are passing and wrong. And see, here's what he does. He takes you from the pleasures that are enslaving and are temporary, and he takes you to pleasures that are eternal. See, God's not a killjoy. He doesn't turn you into a robot. He takes you from something that will kill you to something that will give you life eternally. The pleasure of knowing him. The person that you were made for. And then it can lead you to joy as the natural fruit of the Spirit living inside of you as you follow him, read his word, and seek to obey it by his help. If that is the happiness you're looking for, find your sins and be merciless with them by repenting of them and trusting in Christ's death on the cross. Follow Christ and then come find me. I want to hear about it. Well, the last section is the last four. The result of sinful conduct that rejects God. It says in verse 31, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Foolish is the first one mentioned. It means that they're without understanding. That's to say they're without any intelligent thought concerning God and and his morality and what he's put forth. This renders them incapable of making godly decisions. They, they, They don't have full comprehension of who God is and what his moral law calls for. They do not understand the truth of God, even at its basic level. No, their conscience is tainted by the world. Right and wrong, as declared by God, are indistinguishable to them. And the next one is that they're faithless, which means that they're, they're more prone to break commitments to others than primarily to God. Their pledge to do something no longer means what they say. They, 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 think, nothing, they think nothing to break of their marriage vows or the business contract whenever they, they have to their own advantage to do so. They're people that eventually have no principle. They do what's most expedient for their own selfish desires. And then he ends here, they're helpless, or excuse me, they're heartless and ruthless, which connect the idea that there's no compassion for those who are in need. Their only desire is for themselves, self-gratification. And ultimately, fleshed out, they have no regard for the good of others. It's really a world that's just turned in on itself. That's the end. That's the end goal of it. Now, now this is quite a list, right? Really encouraging sermon to end with for me, right? So why does Paul include such a long list of sins in these verses? Well, what does this list tell us about our world? He's giving them understanding of, of the world they live in. And what, when you read through this list, what does it tell you about your neighbors or your coworkers, or the people that fill your surroundings? And how they've rejected God and his rightful rule of their lives. What do you learn? You know, one thing as we read a list like this, we might go away thinking that there's no way out, that there's no hope for the world in which we live. And how, how can there be any hope out of the mess that we see, this chaos in our world? Well, this is only chapter one of Romans. There's a lot more chapters after this. And, and as you read through the book, you start seeing how, how Paul fleshes this out and you see it in the church. It's, it's really glorious. 
Using the related terms, he urges the readers to avoid certain vices and encourages them to adopt an alternative attitude. And so generosity is urged instead of greed, and good instead of evil in chapter 12. And then love without hypocrisy is expounded as a positive alternative to every situation, also in chapter 12. And then walking with decency is the antidote for all forms of sexual immorality. And that's in chapter 13. And then blessing rather than cursing and humility rather than pride. That's all talking about in chapter 12. And the alternative to being undiscerning and untrustworthy and unloving and unmerciful is the ability to test and approve God's will in chapter 12. Being faithful in prayer, being devoted to one another and showing mercy with cheerfulness. All of it is in chapter 12. And so I would encourage you today as we finish this really dreary end of this section to go to chapter 12, read 12, read 13, because what Paul is showing us is how the gospel and what Christ has done shows a whole new way of life. But we only learn that by keep reading in the Bible and submitting ourselves to the gospel. So we've seen the disordered worship shrinking our mind and disordered worship ruins a life. Last one, disordered worship approves of evil. Verse 32, though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve death, they not only do them but give approval to those who practice them. This is really the punchline of the section. Not only do they do what they know they ought not to do, they create a society in which these things are accepted and approved. And sinners do not act out of ignorance, granted that no evildoer ever understands all the implications of the wrong he's doing. It still remains that they know enough to know what they are doing is wrong. Paul is clear. They know God's righteous decree. They know it. They have seen it. As we've seen in this chapter, they've seen it in creation. They understand a portion of truth. And how do we know this? It's because their conscience condemns them. Almost every person in every single society has understood that there's right and wrong. Our categories might be different, but everyone knows, everyone declares they know right from wrong. You don't have to argue with people in our country right now about murder. Is there another side saying what happened in Texas is okay? Or is the world saying that is wrong? Everyone knows. They see the display and they don't defend it. They know. They know it's wrong. They see the wrong. They feel it in their bones. Deep down inside of them, it's wrong. And how do they get that understanding? God gave it to them. They, they know God's righteous decree, and they reject it. And so this, these verses clearly state that human beings are in a position to understand God's truth, every single human being. But even though they know God's righteous decree, they ignore it because of the disordered worship of God. When we go back to this list earlier, it most surely comes from an unsettled conscience. See, when your conscience is killing you, you are tempted to justify your actions in order to silence your conscience. And one way to do it is by applauding the behavior and recruiting others to participate in that behavior. Sinners usually think there is safety in numbers. 
People are willing to risk God's condemnation in order to pursue their own selfish desires and ambitions and to try to quiet their conscience that speaks against it. And when we read this last verse, it sounds like Paul is saying that consent to evil is more condemnable than the actual practice of it. In fact, many ancient scribes tried to rearrange this verse to avoid that understanding. They didn't like that. But in, in a real sense, Paul is truly saying that. The person who commits sin is certainly guilty before God, but the one who applauds such acts has even more guilt because that person encourages many others to join in to those depraved actions. One commentator, Charles Hodge, says there is This is the lowest point of degradation. To sin even in the heat of passion is evil, but to delight in the sins of others shows that men are of set purpose and fixed preference to be wicked. Paul is saying that those who encourage others to pursue evil commit a greater evil and that they torment the spread of evil and are complicit in the destruction of other people. And this is a trajectory that we see in our world today. Every time they condone behavior in others, they make it easier for themselves to do that same behavior because they create a climate of public opinion to which it's acceptable. Paul is serious. And Paul is not done with this argument here but I'm done. He goes into chapter two, and I'm not. So I'm gonna encourage you, because as we read this, especially in chapter two and chapter three, you get a better and fuller picture of the way out. I wanna encourage you to do that. But I wanna end in encouragement, because this has been hard. So I came across a positive rendition of these, chap- these verses here from 28 to 31, and I want to read it. Therefore God gave them over in their hearts to self-control and purity, that their bodies might be honored among them. For they kept and cherished the truth of God and worshiped and served the Creator, who is blessed forever rather than the create creature. Amen. For this reason, God gave them over to pure and wholesome lives, lived with carefree ease, even in the most intimate relations, so that all received in their own persons the due reward of their fidelity. And just as they saw fit to acknowledge God in all things, God gave them over to a sound mind, to do things which are proper, being filled with all righteousness and goodness and generosity and kindness and full of selflessness and life and healing and openness and kindness. They are gentle in speech, always building others up, lovers of God, respectful, respectable, humble, self-effacing, inventors of good, obedient to parents, understanding, trustworthy, loving, merciful. And as they know the ordinance of God, that those who practice such things are possessors of life, they do the same and give hearty approval to those who do likewise. That's an encouraging list, isn't it? See, the Lord has made a way for us to reverse this list in our world and in our lives. 
And it will not happen with clever rhetoric or political promises or government-sponsored programs. It will happen through the power of God's Word, unleashed in the hearts and minds of men and women in our world through the preaching and teaching of His Word. It will happen when we as a church take the Word to our friends and our family and we pray and we beg God to open hearts and minds to accept the truth and to seek to live in obedience to His Word. It happens when we as a church fight for unity in the gospel and seek to spend time with one another outside of the Sunday gathering, building each other up and serving one another. So that's my charge to you, friends, on my last Sunday before I head off. I pray that this summer will be filled of lots of ministry that happens not in this building, but in your homes, in your neighborhoods, in your workplaces. I pray that we would be people who spend time in their Bible and prayer and allow that to overflow into our relationships with other people. I hope I don't come back in September and hear that we had a bunch of holy huddles and we never were with other people throughout the summer. I want to encourage you to spend time with one another. To enjoy one another. Does anyone enjoy eating? Six of you. At some point, we're going to have summer. I don't know when. But to have a barbecue and invite a few families over from church that you've never met and to hear their testimony of how God saved them and to build a relationship, to spend talking about what God's doing in each other's lives, to pray for one another, to encourage one another. Friends, that's what church life should look like. Some of you think church life is just here from 10.30 to noon. No, it just kind of jump starts the rest of the week. So I pray that that will be seen in our, in our lives this summer. That you really take it to heart, that you seek to do it in the midst of busyness and vacation and, and summer camps and all the rest. You'll be involved in each other's life. Not for, for us or only, but for God's glory and for the sake of this church. Would you join me in prayer? Father, you have been so good to us. You've been faithful to us in every step of the way. I'm sure I'm not the only one this morning as we read through this list and as we saw this description of life that we could say, that was me. I lived that way. I thought that way. I acted that way. I treated people that way. But because of Christ, all things have changed. And it's, for, it's your honor and glory. It's not what we've done. It's not that we've pulled ourselves up and, and found a new way. It's because of what you have done in our lives. And so we pray that we would concentrate our heart's love on you. We would build our hope in you. You would invigorate our lives with trust in you. That you would help us to, to love one another in this church. To seek to build relationships with one another, one another and that we would grow as a church. Father, I thank you for this body of believers. 
I thank you that you've called them here and you're equipping them and you're working them and I pray that you would send them out this week for your honor and your glory. May they serve you well in the stations of life that they're at and the seasons where they're, where they're living now. It's for your namesake that we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.